we're going back uh, to the book of Ephesians the, this morning. We ended uh, probably sometime in May, and uh, so we're going to pick that up again in this uh, series of uh, uh, Living in Two Worlds, uh, um, and it's uh, just an amazing book, and uh, this morning is uh, just a tiny bit of a review, but also just launching out then uh, to catch us up uh, for, for next week. Uh, it's, it's more of a review even for the Sunday evening uh, congregation as they have not been part of the Ephesian series, and so we have to bring them up to speed with what we've been talking about and where we've been going. Um, but I was thinking, uh, uh, as we review these few verses um, from chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that it is talking about a, a makeover, an extreme makeover, and I thought, well, extreme makeover, home edition. Uh, it's something that I confess, um, yes, I do have a TV, um, and yes, I do watch it from time to time, and uh, yes, I do watch Extreme Makeover Home Edition once in a while. If you've never watched the show, the, the premise of the show is, is simply that it begins with a, a, usually a family that's needy. Uh, it could be that a spouse has died or a spouse has become ill. Uh, it could be that they've hit with some kind of financial tragedy or some kind of medical um, dilemma challenge that's uh, hitting them. Uh, they just find themselves in very, very difficult circumstances. And often what goes along with those difficult circumstances among the family that they choose is, is that their house is in, uh, is in a state of disrepair. Uh, it's falling apart, it's leaking, it's often a health hazard, and it's a, it's a very dangerous kind of situation. And the families that, um, that are, are selected for these, usually at the time of the selection, are at their wit's end, they're at the end of the rope. Um, often they have no hope and they're not quite sure how they're going to make it for another sort of week. That's the, the sort of the, the premise, the, the first start of the show. And then what comes along is uh, we, 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 we enter the design team. Three or four people led by Ty something or other. I can never remember his, lie name, his last name. But uh, Ty comes in and they drive in in this bus and then they collect together uh, hundreds if not thousands of volunteers and they come up to the, the family home and they get the family out of bed. They send them on a one-week vacation uh, they, they, and in the course of those next seven days, they basically tear down their old house, um, build a brand new house in its place. Um, they will often supply scholarships for the, for the children because they've not had any hope of going to school. The, there might be a medical company that contributes a certain amount of money uh, for their long-term medical expenses. Sometimes they pay off the mortgage. Other times they get them out of debt completely. Uh, they give them a new car. And it's all intended in order to set these people up um, in order to succeed and to get them out of the pit of despair that they're in and set them out on a new, new path. And then the, the end of that sort of series is, is that the family arrives home after their time of vacation, and in this short period of a week, their circumstances really have been reversed. And in most cases, the people uh, uh, are, are equipped to carry on further good deeds in the service they, or in the community. Often, uh, they, they have held daycares, or they have um, done riding schools, or they've done a catering service, or, or any number of things. And so, uh, the, 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 the end of the makeover is that they want to set these people up to continue to serve and to do amazing things in the community. That is the show, Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I want to talk this morning about Extreme Makeover Bible Edition. And uh, I think there's some real parallels as we go through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So if you have your Bibles, um, take them. And I hope you bring your Bibles uh, on Sunday morning. It's a great thing to bring and to make sure that I'm saying what's actually in the Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the, in the seats in front of you. But turn to the book of Ephesians, which is about um, three quarters of the way through the Bible. It comes after the book of Galatians and just before the book of Philippians. It's a little book. But Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to read um, verses 1 to 10 this morning. 
and see if you cannot pick out the three stages of extreme makeover as we read through these verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, thank you that we can now turn to you in your word. Um, We have focused on you, Lord, in adoration and expressing our joy because of all that you have done for us. We have acknowledged your holiness and just what that means for us and some of the implications that it means for us. And we have um, considered, Lord, just your way amongst us. Now we come to your word. And I pray once again that you would open our eyes to see ourselves in it. That you would open our eyes to see the amazing um, things that you have done for us, the amazing things that you want to do for us, the amazing things you have done for us in Christ. Father, we have no trouble seeing physical realities, but we often wrestle with spiritual realities. So, Spirit of God, would you fill us afresh? Would you make this book live, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first uh, three verses talk about what I call before divine intervention. If you're thinking about it in light of extreme makeover home edition, it's the situation that people find themselves in before help arrives. And chapter, or verses 1 to 3, really describe the desperate situation of mankind. It really is an account of what the Bible calls the living dead. I know it's not a a very nice term, but it's a phrase that, that the Bible describes uh, uses to describe those who are, who are not in the family of God. He says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but we still walk according to the way of this world. So there is life in us, there is animation in us, we do things, but as it relates to God, there is absolute and complete and utter spiritual deadness. We are dead towards Him. I call this nightmare maybe the walking dead. Um, as they say, others call it the living dead. But it is a description of every single human being that ever was born or ever will be born. It's a description of our spiritual state, of the spiritual reality which we find ourselves in. And it is really a desperate situation. Paul describes it in a number of phrases. He he uses one phrase. He calls it following the course of this world. In other words, captive to the course of this world. Captive to the way that the world thinks. To the way that the world walks. To the values of the world system. To the desires of the world. To the pleasures of the world. To the politics of the world. To the fame of the world. The way that the, the world directs us in, in, its, in its news, in its books, in its, in its impulses to what is important and what we should value in our life. Question, do you not know 
that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So right away, Paul is saying, we're in real trouble. That, 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 that if we're following the course of this world, if we're following the ways of this world, we are at enmity with God. We are hostile towards God. And James puts it this way. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is an incompatibility between those two things, love of the world and love of God. So that's one of the ways that, that, we, that we get in touch with our spiritual deadness, if we can put it that way. A second thing that he says about us is that we follow the power or the prince of the power of this air. In other words, we follow Satan. There are really, uh, no, there are only two fathers in this world. The scripture makes that blatantly and abundantly clear. There is the father God who lives above, and there is the father Satan who lives below. There are no other alternatives. There are no other options. Either you are a child of God or you are a child of Satan. It is very hard for us to wrap our heads around that kind of thinking. It's very difficult for us to put ourselves in that sort of, in that, in that spiritual reality and think about ourselves that way. But the Bible calls us prisoners of war. It tells us that we are held captive by Satan. The, the, uh, John tells us at the end of chapter 5 of 1 John that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that, you add those two together. If you're following the course of the ways of the world, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, then you are in the power of the evil one if you are not following God. So that's the second thing that he says about us that illustrates our spiritual deadness. We, 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 fall, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We're following the course of this world. We're following the prince of this world. And then the third thing that he says is we are following the desires of body and mind. In other words, our, our, our flesh directs the course of our life. What we want to do when we want to do it. And the Bible is pretty clear that the f- mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Again, we have this tension that is drawn. World, God, flesh, God. A little bit later, he says, do you not know, Paul says in, in Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is so absolutely clear. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned, therefore all are dead. And so another way that we measure our, the, our, the spiritual reality of our life is that we do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do, however we want to do it, to whoever we want to do it. We are slaves to our minds and to our flesh. And the fourth thing which Paul adds there, which continues to draw this picture together, is he says we are by nature children of wrath. This is indeed a bleak picture. But what he's saying is by nature our impulse is against God. Our impulse is towards sin. Our way of walking is according to the way of this world. Our way of living is is according to the impulses and the directions of the prince of the power of this air. We are rebels against God. We love to sin. We want to do it our way. We don't want God to rule over us. We don't want to acknowledge that there is a God. And the Bible is so clear. That if God is the one who created us, if God is the one who who created this world, then God is the one who sets the, the terms of how we live in this world. And we are all, because of our sin, under the wrath of God. 
Now that is a bleak picture and I understand that and that is a desperate situation. But that is the situation that we find ourselves in outside of Christ. We, we need to be honest with ourselves. And that's the situation of these extreme homemakers. They don't kind of paint a rosy picture. They put it all out there and they say, this is the condition of their life. This is the circumstances they're in. They're in trouble. Loved ones, this is the situation of all those who are outside of Christ. We are in trouble. I was thinking that what often happens in that show is that they, they have a video and as they're driving along the bus, they slide in the video and they watch the video and it sort of is the story of the family. Well, this is the story of, of humanity outside of, outside of God. And I was thinking if I were to slide in a video about someone I was going to pray for, say one of my sons, and all of my sons are following Christ, but I might, I might pray this way. Father, my son needs divine intervention. He thinks he is alive, but really he is dead. He's being pulled along by the course of this world, and it's such a strong current, Father. He has no resistance to it, though. He loves the good life. He loves the pleasures of the world. They have such a grip on him. And Father, not only that, but he seems to be doing things that are so out of character. Well, maybe they simply reflect his character, but it's like he is being controlled by someone else or somebody who has greater power than he has. And Father, his passions and his thinking also, they're going to destroy him. His love of money, his pursuit of sex, his pursuit of pleasure and selfishness, his hard-heartedness towards you. Father, unless you intervene, he will never find freedom. He will never know peace. He will never experience life. That is the video that I send to God on behalf of those who are outside of Christ. But then we talk about divine intervention. I think that's the the next number of verses when we look at verses 4 to 7 in here. It's like the physical bus pulls up to my house. And if you ever watch that show, the family are often, they're sleeping in bed or they're maybe having breakfast. And this big, huge bus pulls up and the, the design team jumps out of the bus and Ty, whatever his name is, has the megaphone. And he says, good morning, Hawks family. And it's probably got to be the most obnoxious voice on the planet Earth. But it wakes the people up, or it gets them out of their house, and they come out. And it's like God one day pulled up his bus in front of my life, and he says, Good morning, Paul! It's like Saul going on the Damascus Road, intent on, on destroying Christians, intent on doing what he thinks is right, but following the course of this world, following the, the desires of Satan, doing his own thing. And all of a sudden, God stops him and he blinds him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is divine intervention. And when those people first hear that voice, I'm sure that what must flood through them is just this rush of hope. Because they've probably seen the show and they probably know what's coming and they've probably seen what's happened to other people and all of a sudden they know, my life is going to change. Well, that's what happens when we hear the voice of God speaking into our hearts and in our life. There's all of a sudden something that happens that begins to shake our world from the inside out and we begin to sense things and feel things and think things that we've never sensed or felt or thought ever before. And the renovation that God does in us is both instant and long-term. 
The Bible says he makes us alive in Christ Jesus. He raises us up with Christ Jesus. He seats us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. In other words, what what God does is in an instant, he changes our circumstances from, from death to life. He changes us from walking in darkness to walking in light. And he raises us from deadness to life in his son Christ. It's this instantaneous change that takes place in a twinkling of an eye. We do know that when Jesus comes back again, and this is the hope that we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's mentioned, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's mentioned that that one day that Jesus is going to come back and that a trumpet is going to sound and that the whole world is going to hear that he's coming back. And at that moment, he's going to call out to the church. And in a moment, it says, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. That is staggering. You talk about a makeover. In a twinkling of an eye, we are going to be new people, immortal, imperishable before God, sinless for the first time ever. Well, God has already done that when he saves us. He takes us from darkness into light in an instance, and everything has changed. That split-second thing that God does in the life of one whom he saved is like the seven-day rebuild of that TV show. They leave a home and a life that is in shambles. They return to a home and a life that is rebuilt. And in a more significant way, God renovates us from the inside out. He recreates us. He changes our DNA. And we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. We go from darkness to light, from captivity to freedom, from condemnation to peace, from death to life, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. That is an extreme makeover Bible edition. A transformation in our lives. And why? Why does does that happen? Why does God do it? Paul is so clear. And it's not an answer that, that many of us find satisfying initially. But once we get to understand who we are and what's going on, we find it to be the only satisfactory answer. Why does God do that? Because he is rich in mercy. He sees us in our desperate situation. He sees us without hope. He sees us without life. And he says, I'm going to be rich in mercy. And because of his great love, as we looked at in the earlier part of Ephesians, that that love goes back even to the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, before we could ever do anything good or bad, God loved us. Think about that. Have you ever been loved unconditionally? Has there ever been a time when somebody has loved you simply because they've loved you? No strings attached. Have you ever loved somebody simply because you love them? No strings attached. None. Period. Zippo. The only person who ever has loved and ever can love unconditionally is God. And it's expressed in one of the greatest things that God does, and that's a renovation of our lives. And he does it also so that he, he can show us the immeasurable riches of his kindness in Christ Jesus. When God intervenes in your life and when God intervenes in my life, don't try to look for reasons inside of yourself because you will never find them. Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 tells us what we are like, tells us, tells us the situation we're in. There's no reason in there for which God would love us. But God is rich in mercy, great in love, and says, I love you. After divine intervention, that's verses 2, 8 to 10, and this is where we're just going to settle for the last few minutes here. After divine intervention, it's by grace you have been saved. And he mentions that in verse 5, and now he picks it up again in verse 8. By grace you have been saved 
through faith, saved me. We always, this is such a common Christian term. What does saved mean? By grace you have been saved. This is such a critical thing to understand. And I, without going farther afield than Ephesians chapter 2, we just simply look at the first three verses again. What does it mean to be saved? It means that we are saved from death or from deadness. We are saved from the world's influence. We are saved from the power of Satan over us. We are saved from the controls and the passions of our own desires and our own mind. We are saved from the wrath of God. In other words, we are set free. In other words, we are set at peace. In other words, we are given life. All of that is wrapped up in this term, saved. I have wrestled with this, though, and I've, I've talked with people most of my Christian life when it comes to this sort of stuff. And this is where we have such initial difficulty because we don't live in a spiritual reality. We live in a physical world. So many people don't give any thought to the spiritual reality around them. And so they come up to me and they say, Paul, what are you talking about? I'm very much alive, thank you very much. Sure, I don't believe in God. Sure, I I only think of him as love. But as I said, I'm very much alive. Thank you very much. So what are you doing telling me that I'm dead in my sins and my trespasses? And after all, Paul, you know, the world's not really that bad a place. There's lots of good things that it has to offer. There's lots of good things that happen through people in the world. I'm not hurting anyone else with my lifestyle. I'm not hurting myself. In fact, I'm helping other people. So what are you doing telling me that I'm following the course of this world and I'm captive to this world? And you know, Paul, after all this Satan stuff, you don't really believe that there is a red guy with horns, do you? You don't really believe that, that he has an influence on my life, do you? I, don't, I, I know I think of people like Hitler or terrorists or that pig guy over in Coquitlam, and they seem to be under the influence of something or someone else, but not me. I'm in control of my own life. I'm in control of my own desires. And this passion stuff, what are you talking about? I can stop myself at any moment. I lie because it saves everyone a lot of grief. But I could stop lying if I wanted to tomorrow. And drinking, that's not really a problem. I could give that up if I really, really needed to. And drugs, well, I just use them recreationally. And sex, well, I enjoy it, but I don't want to be boundaried by the controls that you put on my life. And it's not a bad thing after all. Nobody's getting hurt and wrath. You can't believe that there's some God that's supposedly angry with me. For the things that I do, after all, I'm really quite a good person compared to a lot of the other people around me. See, in other words, we don't see the desperate nature of our situation. We don't really see ourselves described in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But this is where somehow God has to work through his spirit and open our eyes. The Bible says that, that sometimes when salvation comes to somebody, it's like their eyes are opened. And for the first time, they see how really desperate they are and what God has to offer. And so this is, this is the situation. And I ask sometimes, and I, I, I want to say to people who think they have the world by the tail and who think everything is wonderful, are you really in control of things as you say you are? Are you really so sure that there is no spiritual reality to this world? And if you are, what, do you, what are you basing your confidence in? Where are you getting that assurance from? So the Bible tells us, and Paul says, we are saved. But then he he adds, by grace. Well, what is this, grace? Well, grace for me is that phrase, but God. 
grace for me, and, and I'm very careful to say this, but I, gotta, I think this is where it is. It's, it's grace is move that bus. Grace is when God does something, we have no part in it, we have nothing to do with it, it it's, we don't deserve it, but he moves the bus and he gives us a brand new life. Not because of anything, we're just standing there. And God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. What is justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. And we all love justice, don't we? Especially justice for the other guy. Just give them what they deserve. Why do they get away from it? They just need justice. And mercy, mercy, that's not getting what you deserve. Mercy is often, uh, often couched in pity. Because we, we see the desperate situation that someone in, we, we see the dire circumstances of their life, and we know that, that justice will even crush them further. And so, out of pity, we have mercy upon them. And so, somebody who deserves justice receives mercy, and they don't get what they deserve. But then there's grace. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is far and above anything that anybody can do for us. I deserve justice. I can hope and plead for mercy, but I have no control or power over grace. By grace, you have been saved. God has done for me what I don't deserve. And Paul just, he wants to help us understand that a little bit more because we do wrestle with that still. And so he says, well, let me add a few things to that to help you understand that. So he says, it's by faith. By grace, you are saved through faith. Well, faith is so much a part of our everyday life. We, we sometimes say, well, faith is only in the spiritual world. Well, it's not. Every time we, we go out to our car to turn on the engine, that's an act of faith. We believe the car is going to stop. start. Every time we go on a, on a plane somewhere, it's an act of faith that that plane is all going to work out, it's done, get done, that the mechanics have done what they're supposed to do, that the pilot knows what he's doing and where he's going. It's an act of faith that we get on the plane. Every time we go on the ferry, it's an, everything that we do, so much of what we do in life is an act of faith. So why is it so hard for us to transfer that into the spiritual realm in which we live? It doesn't mean that it's blind. It doesn't mean that there's no basis of logic or reason behind it. It just means that at some point there's a step of trusting what somebody says or what somebody is going to do. And so that's what faith is. Faith means trusting in what God has said and what Christ has done. It's a conviction that God speaks truth. And so I have a conviction that God saves me in Christ Jesus. And then he says, and it's not of your own doing. That means exactly what it says. We are not saved by anything that we do. And then he says, it's a gift. This is a positive side of salvation. Salvation is a gift. And you know, no gift is earned or deserved. That's not what a gift is. It's a gift, if, if a gift is earned or deserved, then it's a reward. But a gift is something that we don't see coming. It's something that we don't expect. It's something that's an expression of somebody else's love or concern or or just wanting to be nice to us, and so they give us a gift. That's what salvation is. It's a gift. It's not something I deserve. It's not something I can earn. It's a gift of God. And then to add it even a little bit further, he says, not of works. And this is such a hard thing for us to accept because we are so driven by works. We are so driven by this notion that anything for free can't be really worth its weight in gold. And, 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 and notice the phrase that he asks, adds after that, not by works so that anyone could boast. 
God knows human nature. I gave $3,000 last Sunday to the church. God really loves me. Or, you know what? Compared to the person down the road, I'm a really good person. So God accepts me. You see what? There's this something inside of us that every time we do a work, it becomes a comparison to something or somebody else. God says, you know what? In salvation, you are not saved by, or you are saved by faith, not because of anything that you do. It's a gift, not by any works that you do, so that you don't boast. In other words, it's all of God. I was thinking of this, um, and this is uh, you know, one of those critical phrases that if you don't remember anything, this might be one thing that you want to remember. Since we have not been saved by works, we cannot be lost by bad works. It's so helpful to remember that. Many of us are quick to point out our good works and say, well, this is why God should accept me. But we ignore our bad works. We ignore those times we, we, we are sharp with our spouses or with our kids. We ignore the bitterness or the hatred that we have to other people. We ignore the times that we tell a, a little bit of a white lie here. And, and, and so we, we seem to forget that the, the balance is, is really weighted in the other direction. And so we are not, since we are not saved by good works, we cannot be saved or we cannot be lost by bad works. Salvation or grace means salvation completely apart from every, any merit of works on our part. Grace means that God does it all for Jesus' sake. Our salvation is a gift from God. It's not that complicated. It's hard for us to accept, but it's not that complicated. It is a gift of God, not of yourselves, and it's not of works. Because if it was, then we would boast. And then who would get the glory? We would. God wants the glory. And so it's not a work that you do. It's a gift of God. It's not the results of work so that we don't boast. There's no place for self-effort, no place for boasting, no place for self-congratulation, no place for human achievement. It's not of works. We all come to, to God in the same way, simply through the cross of Jesus, and by grace we are saved. So back to the extreme makeover for a moment. They come up to a family and they say, you know, we're going to build you a new house. Well, it takes faith to accept that, right? I, I think it must be initially hard when they're off on holiday somewhere and, and sometimes they're maybe in Disneyland, sometimes they're maybe on a cruise or something and then there's a moment at which they, they, they have a video cam and, and um, uh, they've got a big excavator in front of a house or one time I saw it. It sounds like I watch it a lot. I don't. Um, but they had a big cannon in front of the house and so they're going to blow the hand up, house up with cannonballs. And so they initially start tearing down that house. Now, doesn't it take a little bit of faith For them to believe that when they come home, they're going to have something rebuilt in its place. And so they they watch their house destroyed and, you know, they're all sort of shocked. And then they shut off the video and they say, you're going to have a new home when you come back. Loved ones, that's faith. They're putting their confidence in the words of that extreme makeover team and that crew of people that says, when they tear down the house, they're going to rebuild it for them. And then they come home and they say, here are the keys to your new house. It's a gift. These people were on holidays when it was being built. They didn't buy it. They didn't earn it. It was given to them as a gift. You go away. We'll do the work. The family contributes nothing. The work is accomplished by others. All they do is get the keys put in their hands. They receive the keys in their hands. And they look at and they go and live in the new house. 
Here's another phrase that if you forget everything else, and maybe even the last one I said, remember this one. <laughs> salvation cannot be of works because the work of salvation has already been completed on the cross. Do you remember what Jesus' final words on the cross were? It is finished. The work of salvation, loved ones, has all been done. It's been finished in Christ. We add nothing to it, and we dare take nothing away from it. On the cross of Jesus, the work of our redemption was completed. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 14, illustrate that for us. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was split, signifying that we all have free access to God in Christ Jesus because of his finished work on the cross. So what's our correct response then to this gift? It's simply acceptance and thankfulness. And then we move to, I think, just an amazing passage of Scripture, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. This is an amazing statement. Do you know, loved ones, that if you are a child of God, you are his workmanship? You are his masterpiece? You are poetry in human flesh? You are a product of his hand, created in Christ Jesus, made by God through union with Christ, to do good works, not of our devising, but that what that he has already planned in advance for us to do. In other words, we exhibit the workmanship of God. I was reading um, Sinclair Ferguson, and he says it so beautifully. The church triumphant, that means the church in heaven, the church after Christ has come back. The church triumphant is an art gallery where God displays reflections of his glory. It's a portrait gallery in which the family likeness is seen in countless different individuals who together display his infinite glory. The church visible, that's that's what we see now. That's the people of God around us now. The church visible here and now is a workshop. The divine artist is still painting his likeness on the canvas of our lives. The divine potter still has clay in his hands. The time for the final exhibition has not yet come, but one day it will. Then all that God has done for us in secret, invisible to the naked eye, will become visible for all to see. What a day that will be. Let me, two sort of practical points from this. Are you struggling with self-esteem this morning? Are you struggling with saying you have no worth, you have no value as a child of God? This one phrase shatters any feelings that you might have like that. You are a masterpiece of God. You are a work of God. You are a poem of God. I think the second application, which is, I think, equally equally important to us, is that when you look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ, They are also a work of God. And we ought to be very careful how we think of them, how we speak to them, how we act towards them, because they are God's masterpiece in creation. They are God's handiwork. They are a poem of God. And we better be careful that we not attack the work of God in the life of another individual. And so we are the workmanship of God. We are created for good works. In other words, we are not saved by good works. You know that, right? I've just said that. You're not saved by good works. But good works are something that are a response of what God has done for us. They are an evidence that God has really changed our lives. They are, they are indispensable to, to the giving evidence of our salvation. 
And, and so these are good works that are contrasted with wicked works in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And the difference is the power or the impulse behind them. So God is at work in us now because we are saved, because we are changed, because we are in the image of God. Now he has created us for good works. And notice what he says. Prepared beforehand by God. Do you know what that means? That, in, that tells me that God has a plan for your life and my life. My life is not just this random series of events that takes place. People that come across my path are not just this random group of people that come across my path. But God has prepared beforehand works, good works for me to walk in. And if God has prepared those works beforehand for me, then he will give me the gifts and the abilities that I need in order to accomplish them. That he will not leave me to myself. That he will give me the strength that I need in order that I might walk in them. That is so freeing to me. As he says, the unbeliever walks according to the course of this world, but the believer walks according to the works that God has prepared beforehand for him. It struck me, and I have never thought about this verse before, but I wrote in my notes um, this little phrase or this little praying. And I, I want to try and pray it, if not daily, at least weekly. God, what are the works that you have prepared beforehand for me to accomplish this day? Uh, for me, that will be life-changing. Because I, I just go along and I see needs and I see people and I try and do things and I try and accomplish things. And, and that's all good. And I'm sure I'm doing what God wants me to do. But I want to have more of a focus even. Because you know sometimes you're presented with three or four options. How do you choose which option to do that day? God, would you show me which work you have prepared beforehand for me to walk in this day? And trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you to do the right thing that day. Because there are so many needs around us. There are so many things that need to be accomplished. We can't do them all. But God has got something specific for each one of us to do every single day, every single week, every single year. I thank you, God, that you have made me this way. I accept the works that you have appointed for my life as the best thing for me. I believe that you will empower me to carry them out. I therefore discipline myself to stay close to you and focus on good works. And I will give you the praise for all the good things that you're doing through my life for your glory. Extreme Makeover Bible Edition. We have the heart of the gospel, loved ones. Before divine intervention, we are lost. We are in trouble. We are in a desperate situation. And then God intervenes in our life and faith is of him, grace is of him, our union with Christ is of him. All that we do has been prepared beforehand by him for us to do. So there is no room for boasting, there is no room for pride. It's simply accept the free gift of salvation that God gives. And then after divine intervention, he releases us to work. He releases us to do good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Loved ones, if you are a child of God, are you walking in the things that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. Father, thanks for a couple...